every step I kind of look at as a opportunity to learn the next thing that's going to help me sort of level up. And there's no way that you can get to the highest levels of success without being really good at communicating with other critical stakeholders. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. In this episode, I have an enlightening chat with Drew Murr, founder and CEO of Banjack Solutions. I have to say, Drew's story doesn't follow that typical linear path that so many of our other guests have had. I hope it inspires anyone listening that thinks that there's a playbook to becoming a founder, because there's not. And Drew is a testament to that. It wasn't until after dropping out of Texas A&M, experimenting in real estate, to serving in the Army Reserves and working in the oil and gas industry that Drew founded Banjax Solutions. With thoughtful lessons on constant learning, speed of execution, partnerships, hiring, and more, Drew exemplifies the creative mindset and resilience required to build a successful business. If there's one major takeaway from this episode, it's just keep moving. Well, Drew, thank you so much for joining us on In the Thick of It. It's great to have uh, somebody from Aggieland on the show. How are things in College Station today? Thanks for having me, Scott. They are hot. And I'll go ahead and mean that both in the literal sense and the figurative sense in terms of busy. Students are coming back into town. Traffic's bad. Business is heating up. So hot in every possible way. (laughs) (laughs) Summers were great. In College Station, when I was a student, I did summer school a couple of times and you could drive around town and it didn't take you, you know, 30 minutes to get from one corner of campus to the other. And you could also go to just about any restaurant in town on a Friday night at seven o'clock and not have a two hour wait. So that is over now, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's within the last week, the traffic has just gone up by 4x probably. So yeah, I love the summers, love the low traffic, but I guess also should be thankful for the students and the university that brings, you know, so much to College Station. But yeah, it's definitely getting busy around here. Thousand percent. Well, let's kind of start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Did you have siblings? What was your growing up like? Sure. And that actually is a good segue to how I got to College Station. So I grew up in South Texas in a town called Bishop, Texas, small town, Bishop Badger. So I was a sort of small farm town. I had one brother, one sister. My brother and I were both sort of what you would imagine from small Texas farm town football players, almost like the the movie Varsity Blues, if, if you've seen it. It was a super interesting childhood, really enjoyed it. My brother, when he graduated, came up here to Texas A&M. I graduated in 2003 from high school and came up here to Texas A&M as well. My sister came up here when she graduated a few years later. And then it wasn't long after that, that my mom decided to relocate up here as well. So my entire family basically relocated to College Station. We grew up, I was sort of rooted in South Texas in that farm community and my whole family over the course of all my siblings and I come into A&M, relocated to College Station, and, and we all still live here. 
actually my brother and my sister are also both entrepreneurs. They both own completely unrelated businesses. So my brother owns a real estate company here and my sister owns an accounting company. So yeah, that's kind of how we got here. It's interesting how entrepreneurship just runs in some families. And it sounds like you guys are in that camp. What did your parents do for work when you were a kid? Yeah. And I've thought about this a lot because how, you know, was the probability that we would all three be entrepreneurs? So we had great role models. So let me just answer your question directly. My dad was in oil and gas and he kind of started on the floor doing entry level work. And the company he was working for told him, hey, if you go back and get your petroleum engineering degree, you can climb the ladder here. And so that's what he did and became a petroleum engineer. And my mom was a CPA for a while. And uh, then she did some real estate. And so, like I said, they were great role models, but it's not like we had any of these businesses sort of handed to us. I mean, we just had some examples of what that looked like. And so my grandparents moved to South Texas. My grandfather decades and decades ago took a job in South Texas, which is why they moved down there from Alabama. And they didn't have past an eighth grade education, but they started a chicken farm and then they started a restaurant and then all of this while he was a full-time diesel mechanic. So we had a lot of exposure to entrepreneurship at a very sort of very community level. No big businesses, like we didn't have any sort of big exits or anything like that. Just really from an early age, I got a good understanding of the fundamentals of entrepreneurship and and my siblings must have as well, because we both, we all ended up owning businesses. So that's kind of what my childhood was like. And I'm super thankful for both my parents and grandparents. Would you say you guys were a pretty typical middle-class family in South Texas? Yeah, I would say actually through my elementary to graduation of high school, we probably went from lower middle-class to upper middle-class as my father got further up in his petroleum engineering uh, career. And then as different business ventures, like the restaurant that my grandparents had started, started to take off, we went from sort of lower middle class to upper middle class. But yeah, we were either way, we were solidly middle class. But yeah, that's pretty much what my experience was like. So we didn't have any, I didn't get any exposure to like the stock market or, or anything like that. My grandparents and parents did get into real estate. So I had some exposure to buying and renting homes from high school. I got some exposure to that from my grandparents, which, you know, I think that just the smallest amount of exposure on a very real level is so beneficial to people. And, and you know, I don't, if I want to go into a long rant on education, but if there's any way that we can figure out how to expose more people to just the fundamentals of like capitalism and what it means to own something, to take responsibility for it, and then to utilize that resource to create some value in society. I think that was so advantageous for me and my siblings to see that, not even on like a, a grand scale, but just on an individual scale was, was very impactful to us. Talking about education for just a minute, when I was in high school, one of the most impactful classes, in fact, I might even go so far as to say the class that has impacted me to this day was a personal finance class. And I think that 
every kid in America should have to take a personal finance class as part of their high school curriculum. Totally. Couldn't tell you the last time I used calculus, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Just something as simple as, okay, you're going to build a budget for your theoretical household. And at 17 or 18 years old, going through that exercise, I mean, it got me thinking that way for the rest of my life. And it was hugely impactful. Absolutely. And, and what does an interest rate mean? Uh, right. How does that work? If I borrow money, what is the difference between paying it off right away or paying it off later? And how does that compound? I mean, those are so fundamental. And there is absolutely, I think that there should be courses on it. But also, to my sort of advantage of seeing this and how it actually affected my family, that hands on experience, I actually think that we should give students loans. And I'd actually have to work out the details of this in terms of the implementation of it. I have kids. I have a six-year-old and an 11-year-old. I haven't given them any business loans yet, but this is absolutely something I'm going to do. And I want them to experience what it means to make a payment or miss a payment, to pay the money back, to have that experience of what it's like to use those financial instruments to level yourself up. And so if we could replicate that to a larger audience, I think that would be great for everybody. thousand percent. You mentioned football. sounds like that was probably a pretty big, important part of your life. You talked about it being the varsity blues kind of period. That was one of my favorite movies, by the way. It came out, I think, my senior year of high school. (laughs) Great movie. I remember going to the theater very vividly, loved it. What position did you play? I was on the line. Uh, So offensive, defense, 3A school. So offensive tackle, defensive tackle. Big guy for that class. Yeah. This episode will come out uh, probably in the winter. But right now, I, I dropped my son off this morning for middle school football practice at 645 before, you know, it got too hot. But you'd be doing two days in the South Texas heat. Absolutely. Are there any <laughs> stories that stand out from playing football in a small Texas town? Oh, man, it was really a impactful experience to me. And, and honestly, it created some challenges going off to college and sort of readjusting what my life was about because it was so much a part of my life. But yeah, I mean, I would say that there was no physical discomfort that I wasn't willing to endure for the success of the team. And I think that aspect has definitely carried over in many other respects in life. But yeah, so to mention two-a-days in the Texas heat, absolutely, I remember 5, 6 a.m. So my town basically surrounds the school. So I remember vividly at two-a-days walking to the school and it was just like these high school athletes were sort of coming out of the woods and descending upon the school in the wee hours of the morning And that degree of commitment and, you know, we would put ourselves through rigorous training and it was a great experience to sort of contribute to a goal as a team and go through a lot of personal sacrifice, particularly as as a lineman, which I was well suited for physically. But uh, as I'm sure you know, linemen, they don't get a lot of publicity. You show up and give your time and your energy and your and your strength towards the objective of of winning games and that was something that in the moment i didn't see a bigger picture at all it was just simply 
it was just part of my identity. I'm just a high school football player. I'm 16, 17, 18 years old. I play high school football. This is what I do. This is part of my identity. But as I got past that and got into the real world, I was able to take a lot of those experiences and apply those to a lot of different uh, domains. So yeah, it was a pretty, pretty impactful part of my life. We've had a number of guests who played at a very competitive level in high school, some in, in college, and and even some have gone on taking a swing at, at the pros. And consistently, everybody has talked about how that team atmosphere, that team environment, the working toward a goal, just like you said, has been incredibly formative in certainly what they're doing today, but in so many aspects of life. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I don't know if we're going to do my whole life story, but at some point after that, I went into the army and I would say just the ability to endure discomfort and sort of pain for a larger goal and team is just so applicable. And then, you know, some people might think that that doesn't carry over to a desk job, but I absolutely think that it does. There are forms of discomfort that aren't just physical pain. It's staying late when you don't feel like it. It's getting up early. It's, you know, it's swallowing your pride when you have to. It's all sorts of stuff. And I think that those experiences definitely have helped me in business. Did you go into the Army straight out of high school? I didn't. So I went to college. I went to Texas A&M. I was at A&M for two or three semesters. And, you know, I was pretty rebellious. I was immature. Again, I kind of had a a difficult time adjusting my identity after high school and ultimately dropped out of Texas A&M, did some creative real estate stuff. At that time, there was a lot of courses on the market. You know, I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which was out back then. And there was all sorts of stuff. My brother was doing creative real estate as well. So when I say creative real estate, like a typical method that we would use back then was to find a home that was appeared abandoned, to look up the owners, to make some offer to owner finance, and then to do some some work to that home, and then maybe owner finance sell it. And then we had sort of a, a routine about that. I was not mature enough to hold down a business at that time. My brother stuck with it. And now he's He's the biggest, uh, as far as I know, I think he's the biggest real estate developer in in the area. So he did that all the way from while he was in college at A&M till today. So he's been at it for probably 20 and made a real impactful company out of it. But I wasn't ready for that in terms of my maturity level. Then I ended up going into the Army. And just to be clear, I was a reservist. So I did about nine months active duty throughout my training phases. Then I was a reservist. Then I did another year on active duty in Austin. And then the remainder of my time was in the reserves. Going back to the the real estate and your brother, were y'all partners or were you kind of doing it, doing the same thing, but doing it independently? We were doing it independently. We may have partnered on some transactions, but we were doing it independently. And to be clear, he was way more successful at it than I was. I did a few deals. I lost some money on some deals that didn't work out the way that I anticipated. Two of them got condemned by the city after I purchased them. It was a mess. Now, I had some good sort of understanding of the real estate market, but by no means was I a mature entrepreneur at that time. I was fumbling my way around. 
What do you do when the city condemns your building? <laughs> well, they tear it down eventually. Yeah. And then you have to pay for it. We ha- actually had some really, so I don't know if you've been through this sort of creative real estate process, but a huge part of it is going to the courthouse, like looking up records of properties that are going to be foreclosed on. So I'll tell you another real estate story. This one's entirely my brother's. I wasn't there for this. Super interesting. So my brother goes to the courthouse. He finds out that there's a home that a house, it's got the address. So at the courthouse though, you have the legal description. You have the legal description of the house with the address. The legal description though, does not include the address. Usually it's, it's like, Lot four, plat three of this subdivision. But then in addition to that, as a note, it had the address. So he he finds this at the courthouse. It's going up for foreclosure. He buys it in foreclosure. He has some buddies that's helping him. They show up to the house. They start unloading. This house has a bunch of stuff in it, which isn't uncommon. Like you'll find all sorts of stuff in, in homes that may have been abandoned or whatever. So they start emptying out this house into a trailer. And then all of a sudden... All these people show up from the neighborhood, very upset. And then the homeowners show up, very upset. And these people had no idea what was going on. They were furious. They start yelling at him. He's like, hey, look, I've got this paperwork. They have to get the sheriff to come over there. They figure out that what had actually happened, it was totally, I don't know if it was James's, my brother's fault, but the note on the foreclosure was wrong. The address was wrong. The foreclosure was actually on the lot next door that didn't have a home on it. So he actually bought a lot with no house and the address on the foreclosure documentation was wrong. So he had to, you know, profusely apologize to these people. He obviously unloaded the trailer, helped set all their stuff back up. But could you imagine? So He doesn't have a lot of money at the time. He's invested a significant chunk of the money that he has in purchasing this foreclosure. Then he nearly gets into a street fight and turns out that he actually purchased the lot next door. So those are just some of the experiences from that era. I think there's a lesson to be learned uh, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, And I think it's similar to the other real estate deal where the homes actually got foreclosed on. And I'll tell you the lesson. It's not that hard to uncover. It's do your due diligence. And I've had to learn that lesson many times, but I suppose there's a certain amount of diligence that would have uncovered those vulnerabilities ahead of time. And we could have avoided having gone through going into the wrong house and then getting the homes uh, condemned by the city. But in that space of trying to take advantage of those types of real estate opportunities, there's a lot of obscurity. And this is one of the reasons why not a lot of uh, big real estate investors do this kind of thing because it's murky. But yeah, so my brother sort of stepped, that's the type of real estate he was doing when I was working with him 20 years ago. And now he's doing He's working on a master plan development right now that's like 360 acres. It's got mixed use, commercial, residential, hotels, restaurants. And so just to kind of speak to his entrepreneurship there, that is day after day of grinding away in the same domain, but leveling up on exactly what it is you're doing in the ecosystem to create value. So there's a definitely a story there. Yeah. When you were doing real estate on your own, 
was that your only source of income? Was that your only job or were you working someplace and, and doing the real estate on the side? At one point, I worked at a hotel, entry level, essentially, night auditor. So just overnight clerk, basically $16 an hour or something, I think is what I was making as a night auditor. And I was also doing real estate at one point as an agent. So, you know, that's typical agency where you're showing houses, listing houses and, and making a, a commission on that. So those are kind of the things I was doing in that era. Oh, we also had a car wash. I forgot. Uh, <laughs> so my brother and I had a mobile car wash. So what the mobile car wash would do is we would go to office complexes, office towers, and then we would get subscription car washes to people who went to work in that office complex. So we'll, you'd basically say you're going to get your car washed in the parking lot every other Tuesday something like that. And so we'd show up to your office. If your subscription included like a full detail, we would go up and get your keys. And then we had a trailer that had the power washer, the soap, and then the vacuums and everything we needed. And we would wash the cars and detail the cars in the parking lot of the business. But that was mainly my brother's as well. I ended up moving to South Texas for a period to do a real estate deal down there before I went into the army. And I think he sold that mobile car wash to one of his buddies. But at this era of my life, these are a bunch of 20 year olds. I'm 19, 20, 21 during this phase. And I've got buddies around me that have the same sort of mentality. So I don't want to overplay these businesses as if they're really notable or successful, but it does give you a sense to where my head was at, where his head was at. And again, he landed on real estate, trying those other things. He landed on real estate, stuck with it. I fumbled through some other things, ended up going through a stint in, in the army before coming back and finding my way to the next thing. There's building blocks. It sounds like you had a couple of these experiences. And the other thing too, which I think is a good thing, you had the opportunity to fail small and not fail big. So failure is not a bad thing if you if you learn from it and... I'm sure he learned a lot going through that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've I've learned a ton. Absolutely, I've learned a ton, and and I think that's a really good point. And this is this kind of goes back to my philosophy on exposing people, especially in education, kids to the opportunity to do things like take out small small business loans, and and it's okay. I think a lot of if I were to present this, I think a lot of the pushback that people might have as well. Let's say they borrow a thousand dollars and they do a lemonade stand and then it fails and they default on this thousand dollar loan or whatever. Is that going to be hor horrible for them? Is it going to demoralize them? Well, maybe, but it's a lot better to go through that experience if you're 16, 17 years old and know what it's like than if you're 30 years old or 40 years old and this is, you know, your first time going through a business. I mean, don't get me wrong, failure sucks at any age and you may go through it at any age. But to start having those experiences earlier and get more of them under your belt, I think is going to put anybody in a better position to move forward. Okay. So did the real estate thing, did the car wash thing with your brother, mm -hmm. how long before you decided I'm going into the army and maybe how did you decide that that's what you were going to do? So I would say it was about two years. I dropped out of, out of A&M and I was doing real estate. At one point, I also went into the ministry. So I went through a lot of life changes, personal development. Between 2003, which is the year that I graduated high school, 
and 2007, I developed tremendously as a person. I knew when I went to college and I left my sort of high school identity behind that I did not know who I was really. I really had such a strong identity that was very localized in high school. I know who I am in relation to my city. I know who the sort of, I know who my opponents are. I know the region. And I knew when I moved away from that, that I did not know who I was. So not to sort of tell a, a moral or, or ethical journey here, but but for the first couple of years, I definitely was all over the place in my behavior, sort of my, I was doing all sorts of stuff I shouldn't have been. And so I really struggled with that, struggled with the ethics of it. I sort of cast out my religious framework and principles that I had grown up with and reevaluated all of those things from scratch. Uh, and so during that process, I came back to a belief system that really was truly mine. And whenever I got to that point, I started participating in the ministry, started helping some churches and doing things like that. And all of that personal development was overlaid with the entrepreneurial experiences that I had grown up with and now was trying to do on my own. And so it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly what led from one thing to the other. At some point, I got sort of bored with what I was doing with the real estate. And I just had the sort of idea that maybe I should serve in some way. And so I started evaluating what does it really mean to go into the military? What are my options? So the reason that I went into the Army Reserves is because I still wanted to be an entrepreneur. And if you go active duty, you, you can't have another job. And so if you go as a reservist, you can have a civilian job. So you can be an entrepreneur. For people who might not know, the general reservist commitment is one weekend a month and two weeks out of the summer or out of the year. So during that time, you train. So you train. First, you go to basic training and then your specialized training. And that might take you six to nine months. But after that period, for the rest of your contract, you do one weekend a month and two weeks out of the year, you go to your training unless you're called up to active duty for a contract. So in my mind, the reason why that was a better fit for me than active duty is because I could still be an entrepreneur. And the reason why I chose my specific unit, which uh, I was a 37 Fox, which is PSYOP, which it honestly, it sounded the coolest. It was the coolest thing that you could do as a reservist. There were cooler things that you could do in the military, but you couldn't go straight in as a reservist. So for example, you can't go straight into the Navy SEALs or Special Forces as a reservist. If you want to be in the Navy SEALs reserves or the Special Forces reserves, at least at the time when I enlisted, you had to be a prior enlisted Navy SEAL or SF. And so at the time when I enlisted, at least as it was laid out to me by my recruiter, the coolest thing that you could do, the most high speed thing that you could do as a reservist was 37 Fox Army Reserves. So PSYOP Army Reserves, which fell under the Special Operations Division. And so that's what I did. And that was definitely quite an experience as well, which I got a lot of a lot of value out of. To the extent that you can, like, what were the kinds of things that you were doing? In the Army? Yeah. What was your job? So one thing I do want to clear up, because I don't want to take credit for anything that I did not do, 
I never deployed. I was never in a war zone. And I absolutely want to clear that up because while I was enlisted, my battalion did deploy. I was not on that deployment. I was in what's called the rear detachment, which they take a portion of the people and they put them on active duty in essentially an office in stateside. And in that role, you have some logistics duties where you support the deployment. I do want to clear that up because, uh, you know, I don't want to indicate that that I'm, I'm the sort of Jason Bourne hero, but I did work with some people that do deserve that level of credit. And so what the job does, 80% of it is very similar to marketing. So here's an example. If we go into a, a city in a foreign country, we're occupying like Iraq or Afghanistan, it's super common for the civilians in that city or in that region to have totally incorrect beliefs about what is happening. Like they will literally think sometimes that the U.S. is there to take their land and move our families over there and occupy and like colonize the country or or something to that extent. So 80% of the job is really just disseminating truthful and correct information to the civilian population so that they know what's going on. And so that's the majority of the job. Then you get into more of the gray area where the messaging is actually targeted at the enemy. And there is an element of deception that is possible of maybe trying to mislead or direct the different warlords or whatever parties in the area. So it's pretty fascinating. It was great to be a part of the training. The training was amazing. I I got to train with some incredible soldiers of of all different branches. And I really, really enjoyed it. I know you said at one point you were in Austin, but where where else were you in your training and and throughout your your time in the Army? So initially, I went to Fort Benning for basic training, which was at that time. Is that Arkansas? Fort Benning is in Georgia. Georgia. And, you know, hopefully I'm not wrong about that because now it's on the (laughs) now it's on the record. Somebody check that before you publish the uh, podcast. My basic training was one of the few that was still all male. I don't know if any of the basic trainings are still all male, but Fort Benning was all male at the time. It was pretty hardcore. And then I went to uh, Fort Bragg for AIT, which is your advanced individual training. Where So in basic training, you learn generalized soldier skills. So you do like your weapons training and then obviously like your PT, your fitness, all that stuff, ruck marches. And then when you go to AIT, you learn some more specialized skills. AIT was at the Special Warfare Center in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And that was super cool. Again, like this is one of the areas where I really got to train with some some high speed soldiers and had a really good experience there. It's actually where I met our COO. So our COO, uh, his name is Salil. I met him at Fort Bragg. We had AIT at the same time. He was actually in a different class than me. His class was two weeks before mine, but they overlapped because it was like three months long. So our classes overlapped and they were actually competitive with one another. So him and I were oftentimes the platoon leaders for our AIT class, and we would have to compete with each other for various, you know, in various competitions. So that was pretty cool. Are you a competitive person? Actually, I'm not. And it depends on how you frame and define competitiveness. But uh, this is something where I've 
I think that I am different than a lot of entrepreneurs. And, and so my brother and I, even though I mentioned we're both entrepreneurs and we both have the similar background, this is one area where we different. I would describe him as competitive and I'm more creative. I actually think that competitiveness and creativity are almost on opposite ends of a spectrum because if you're competitive, you want to know the rules and the framework that the competition is existing in so that you could win in it. And you're always trying to figure out how to understand those rules and play better to win within that framework. And then if you're more of a like sort of contrarian, creative person, you're always asking, how can I avoid the rules? How can I not play by the rules? How can I create a new set of rules? And not that those things can't go hand in hand, but I, I do see them sometimes as opposed. And this, in some ways for me, has been an advantage, but absolutely in some ways has been a huge weakness of mine because rather than doing things a straightforward way, I have a predisposition to do them in a unique way, which is not always the best way to do things. Well, being part of a team, hopefully you have people that balance you out. Sure, sure. So you're in the army. How old were you when you got out? I was 27. Okay. So you're mid to late twenties. You've had this great experience. Where did you go after that? Did you go back to College Station? So I did a short stint in car sales, <laughs> which is, I know, on the agenda for building an entrepreneur. Like that is a, sort of a lot of people have that in their story. So I did about nine months in car sales, which that itself gave me a lot of good experiences on what salespeople are like. Prior to that, I really wasn't a salesperson. You know, I had done real estate sales, but it wasn't wasn't very salesy in terms of sales behaviors. But in car sales, I got to see what that's like and what different kinds of salespeople exist. And that was interesting. Now, mind you, some of this happened while I was in the army, because in the reserves, I did have the ability to have a full-time job. So after car sales, I went into the oil field. And so this is the one season of my life that is not really entrepreneurial. I'll tell you where my head was at at that time. I had bounced around all over the place. I had done the Army Reserves, and that was great life experience, but I wasn't really very employable. I didn't have a degree. I didn't have any experiences that I could really put on a resume, and I had gotten married, and my wife was pregnant. So at that time, I was like, how do I make some money? So I went into the oil field and that I spent seven years in the oil field. And that was a whole set of new experiences, which was also really uh, formative along the way. Where were you working in the oil field? It was a job that was on the rig and I was changing rigs all the time. So I spent a lot of time in South Texas. I spent a lot of time in West Texas. I spent almost a whole year in Pennsylvania. I spent some time in New Mexico. So anywhere that there was a rig that could use my services is, is where I was, but mostly Texas, New Mexico, and Pennsylvania. And would your wife travel with you or was it the sort of thing where you would go and be away and come back periodically? Usually I would go and be gone for three or four weeks and come home and she would not travel with me. Occasionally, if I had a stint that was longer than three weeks, we would try to make some arrangements where she would come and meet me and maybe so she did have my daughter at that time. And so 
if I was going to be gone for three plus weeks, she would either bring my daughter with her to come see me and maybe we would do this thing. So the way that the oil field works for a lot of jobs is you work 12 hour shifts because the rig never stops. So you work a 12 hour shift and you hand over your duties to another guy who's going to work a 12 hour shift. And then you come back for your 12 hour shift after that. So when you get in a scenario where your wife's going to come see you, if you have good buddies, you work out some arrangement where the other guy actually works an 18 hour shift and you work a six hour shift, or maybe he'll work a double. And uh, so that's how we would manage it to see our spouses and our kids. That's tough. And kudos to your wife for helping raise a, a baby while yeah. <laughs> while you were away for so much time. That's hard. Well, my wife, she deserves a ton of kudos, but we actually got together two days before I left for basic training. So I had chemistry class with her. So during this time, I, I neglected to mention that I re-enrolled in college for one semester because I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. While I was re-enrolled, I took chemistry. While I was in that chemistry class, I met my wife. So we had chemistry both literally and figuratively. As soon as we uh, met, we started hanging out. We started studying together. We were legitimately studying together. And while we were studying together, like we knew that we liked each other and everything. And we even talked about it. And I told her, so at that point, towards the end of that semester, I had already signed up for the army. I already knew what day I was shipping off. And so I was like, hey, like, I would love to date you, but I'm leaving for the army in four weeks. So maybe we should just be friends and then I'll call you when I get back. Well, as that date approached, we didn't really want to leave on just friend terms and take the chance that it wasn't going to work out. So we decided to officially get together two days before I left. So she has been enduring this lifestyle since the very beginning. So yeah, she deserves a, a ton of kudos. Okay. So you mentioned that you were able to work concurrently while being in the reserves. And when that all ended, what did you go do next? I'm sorry. It was the oil field. You went to the oil field. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I went into the oil field. I got super lucky in the sense that the type of job that I got was a job that it did not require any certifications or credibility, but it had a ton of upward mobility because basically they threw you in there and you have to assemble a bunch of very complicated equipment, a whole bunch of computers that have to be connected together. And then they have to go down a hole and uh, endure extreme conditions while drilling. And then they will take anybody who's willing to do the work on 12 hour shifts. But if you can figure out the equipment and if you understand what's going on, you can work your way up relatively easily if, you know, if you really put your mind to it. And so that's what I did, which was super fortunate for me to be in that position. I went ahead and ordered the petroleum engineering textbooks from the University of Texas. And I ordered the ones from UT rather than AM because those were available to purchase online at the time whereas uh, A&M didn't have any. So I only ordered about three of them, the ones that were most relevant to my job. And I just read those on my own while I was off shift and really progressed to build quite a career in oil and gas. I could have stayed in oil and gas, but ultimately I wanted to go back to being an entrepreneur. And 
so what what was that next step like? You you had this desire. I guess you, you probably felt like you're you'd done your time in in the oil and gas space. You'd had enough. Well, I actually have to give credit to a buddy of mine that I worked with. He worked for Shell, and I worked as a third party contractor. Uh, we worked together on a big job in Pennsylvania for a long time. We spent about a year together, and at the time, oil rigs generate a lot of data but they don't necessarily use that data. So they store it on the rig in a sort of primitive machine and it stores this data. You can download it as a CSV file. So if you've ever downloaded a CSV file, it's just all these values with commas separating them with column headings. You can then import them into Excel. So while I was working in the oil field, one of the things that I would do is I would download these CSV files from the rig And then I would write some macros in Excel and some uh, VBA code in Excel to then go through that data and generate charts and graphs and logs. And then from those charts and graphs, we would make our business decisions or, you know, I call them business decisions, but they're they're operational decisions. Like, do we want more weight on the bid or, or a higher flow rate or more pressure or how is the temperature affecting our tools? And so I was generating these charts, and this is where my buddy came in that I mentioned, Mateo. He said, man, you need to just sell this back to the oil companies. Like, you just need to just quit your job and take these Excel sheets that you built and generate these charts and sell them back to the oil and gas companies. And we brainstormed about this because we worked together for 12 hours a day, and a lot of our work at that time, it's not like we're turning wrenches constantly. We're looking at computer screens all day. So most of the time. So we're sitting next to each other on a rig, but in like a mobile home on the location with big computer screens in front of us. I'm using my programs, you can call them, to do our job. And and we're brainstorming how this would work. And uh, he eventually convinced me and he insisted that he would put in some money into this endeavor. So I quit my job. I borrowed some money from Mateo and I started what was called Royal Services. So I don't know where I would be today had he not really helped in pushing me to make that decision. Maybe I'd still be on a, on a drilling rig. I'm not sure, but I, I got to give him a lot of credit for that. So I started Royal Services. I started selling these reports back to oil and gas companies. So we charged $500 a day to just have our reports. So I would just download the CSVs from the rig, run the reports, and then sell them back to the oil and gas companies. And it was very cumbersome. It was not efficient at first. And so I got up to where I was running three rigs at a time. So I was making $1,500 a day selling reports on, on these three rigs by myself. And during that whole time, I realized I need to learn more about software because uh, the way that I'm doing this now, it's very inefficient. It requires a human to you know, go download these CSVs. I need to stream this data. I need to do this in a much more scalable way. And so during that period, I started to learn more about software. So that's really interesting. You're sitting in the, the job trailer you're taking the data that that belongs to your employer right on your own you you took the initiative to go build out these models right and, and is it fair to say that what you were selling back to them was your your models yeah it was an interpretation of their information okay so like today you can buy 
all sorts of products to look at data. Like if you pay for Tableau, Tableau doesn't give you any new data. They're just giving you some framework to interact with that data so that you can make some sense out of it. This was very specialized in in terms of it wasn't like Tableau. It didn't just give you graphs. It gave you decision-making points, which was really helpful to the operators. So what was that conversation like going back to your employer saying, hey, here's my two weeks, (laughs) but two weeks from now, I'll continue to work for you as a third party analyzing your data that I've been, you know, doing this in the trailer all along. Was that well received? I mean, I guess if they gave you three rigs and paid you 1500 a day, it went okay. Yeah, honestly, parts of it were awkward. So I was far enough removed from the business office of my employer that they didn't really know me on a uh, sort of first name basis. I put in my two weeks and then I ended up working with them. So they, to be clear, they were not my customer. So the oil and gas is a super interesting business, but you have a ton of service providers that come along. There's the oil and gas company who is primarily their focus is getting the actual oil and gas out of the ground and then getting it to production. But then you have the the drilling rig, which might be a completely independent company that is a service provider. Then they sub out to a whole bunch of other service providers that do a lot of other services. So anyway, the company that I worked for was one of those service providers that wasn't necessarily involved in the analysis that I was providing to the operator. It was quite a bit sort of above and beyond what my job was. And so they were kind of oblivious to the whole thing. I put in my two weeks and quit. Uh, They didn't really know a difference one way or another, but I ended up working with them on some future jobs. So I was selling my services mainly directly to the oil and gas companies And then I would see some of the same people on jobs that I was on in the future. And so that was interesting to run into them there. And and now I'm coming out there with my computer and downloading the CSV. And it was pretty cool. I still have a lot of relationships from that era. Oil and gas is a fascinating, I mean, it is a, especially in Texas, it is a sort of cowboy industry where you can make a lot of money for doing hard work, for understanding things. And this is especially true with the Texas-based smaller service companies. And so I just want to clarify this if anyone's thinking about going into oil and gas. If you think that you are a real go-getter, the way to get in is not by working for a Fortune 100 oil and gas company. Find a company that's run by some guys out of Corpus Christi. They have 150 employees and they make $50 million a year or $100 million a year because those people are go-getters. They know how to work and how to outrun Exxon and Chevron. I mean, don't get me wrong. I appreciate the big companies as well, but it's really those small players in oil and gas that that are still living in this era of hustle and industrialism. Good advice. I want to jump back for just a minute. You talked about you get the this raw data in the CSV file and load it into Excel. And I think most people in high school probably get some exposure to some very basic Excel stuff. Here's how you sort things. Here's how you filter things, getting into some charts and graphs. But getting into 
writing VBA, that's a different level. Where along your journey did you develop that skill set? And maybe taking that a little bit further, were you gifted as it relates to technology at this point in your life? So I would say that VBA, so let's say you start on Excel. The very first thing you have to Google is how to create a new tab, right? So VBA is probably about the 150th Google search. You know, this was before ChatGPT, which if, if you're learning stuff today, you have more resources than I had then. But then I already had Google, which I had more resources than the people before me. And so almost everything I've learned has been a byproduct of Googling something. So, yeah, I mean, I was just learning something new every day. And so I imported that CSV into Excel. Step one, that was Google search number one. Okay, well, how do I write a formula? Okay, well, how do I do this next thing? How do I add a button to the page? How do I do this? And I would say that it's all just been a progression. So VBA, if you don't know, Excel is an incredibly powerful tool. You can write code, VBA, directly on the back end of Excel. And if, if people don't know that, if you want to go further into Excel, you can keep going. I mean, I've seen people sell Excel sheets for $50,000 because there's that much value that can be built onto Excel. So yeah, it was just probably about the 100, 150th Google search that got me to VBA. Interesting. I like how you how you phrase that. Something though, I think that is important, and we're seeing this with ChatGPT and, and some of these other chat AI tools, knowing what to feed it is critical to getting the kind of result that you want. And, but even in the Google days, how did you know what questions to ask? How did you know what terms to search for? That's a good question. And I think Googling is a skill. And we used to, when I used to talk about hiring with like our hiring manager and stuff, we've talked about how can we evaluate this skill? But I definitely think that it's the same, whether you're trying to learn VBA or you're trying to look something else up, it's, it's understanding the way the system works and what words you would need to put into the system to get the result that you are looking for. And that is definitely a skill. And the way that Google works is different than the way that ChatGPT works. We're finding that out now. And it's actually interesting. Some, I, someone made the comment that we used to make fun of the previous generation for the way that they would Google, but the way that they would Google is now the way that you need to put stuff into ChatGPT. So when you ask a question, if you ask Google the question in a very like straightforward way, like, hey, Google, what would happen if the president and the vice president died in the same incident? Who would become president? Question mark. If you put all that into Google, you may not get the desired result because that's not the way Google works. Google works by indexing on terms. You might now, because Google now actually uses AI, people may not realize that Google is better today than it was 10 years ago because it uses AI in the results. But that's exactly how you would ask that question to ChatGPT. So I would say this is almost like a fundamental skill. There's not very many things that I would say people need to get good at as fundamental skills, but we are now superhuman, right? We interact with technology to go about our daily lives. And so the way that we interact with that technology, that is now like a fundamental skill. So learning how to Google and learning how to use ChatGPT are almost more fundamental than learning finance, 
these are very primitive. These are like just right there above like walking and using your hands. <laughs> you need to learn how to use Google and ChatGPT. Well, I think my takeaway from your story about starting with a CSV file and going from what's a CSV file all the way to selling these spreadsheets back to these companies for $500 a day per rig. I think that that speaks to a natural curiosity that you have. And you talked earlier about that creative mind that you have. I feel like those two go together. Yeah, I think so. And you did ask earlier, but I avoided the question, if I was particularly gifted in this field. That's a aspect of it as well. I do have certain advantages that I'm just kind of blessed with, like some things I pick up easier than others. I also have disadvantages, like huge ones that I've had to work on and adapt to. But as far as picking up on technology and picking up on stuff like that, that has been sort of a gift that that might come a little easier for me. You mentioned through this experience, having to actually physically go to the rig and get the file, then go to the next rig and get the file you determined that it wasn't a scalable way to grow this business. And you started researching other technology things. Where did that lead you? Well, I mean, today I I use a whole bunch of different technologies, but I don't want to tell you about the fancy ones that I use now. I actually want to tell you about the, the next one that I use because this is such a hack that I'm proud of. And it's just like a good example of a business technology hack. So what I wanted to say and what I wanted to do after I had to physically download the CSV was to say that we were live streaming the data, okay? Because nobody was doing this at the time. And we wanted to live stream the rig data offsite where I didn't have to go on site and then I can generate these reports faster and I can get them to my customers faster. So there are all sorts of technologies for live streaming data. But what I ended up doing, which this is the hack, is I left a computer on the rig. I left it plugged into the rig, which is it's called a RS-232 port. But it's basically those old printer cables. You remember the old printer cables? And they used they look kind of like VGA monitor cables. Wide and looks like it has teeth. Yeah. It'll bite you. Yes, I think it has like nine pins or 12 pins. So I connected the computer to the rig with that. I had the CSVs saving to this computer. And then on every computer, I had a Dropbox account. And those CSVs would save into the Dropbox account. And on my home computer, I had Dropbox opened. So every time a CSV file would save, I was reloading my home computer in real time. I'm just like refreshing the page. And that refresh would get me the latest data. So rather than using a... uh, you know, more sophisticated data streaming technology. I just installed Dropbox on every rig and then refresh that on my home computer. It was pretty cool. You know what? Sometimes the simple solution is better than the elegant, sexy solution. It works. It gets the job done. Didn't take hardly any time at all to get that set up. And, you know, now you're able to service the customer better. Yeah, exactly. Nobody knew nor cared. This is a, a sort of business mantra, the customer doesn't care what kind of technology you use, really. They just care about the result. So if I could get them their reports faster, they don't care whether I'm using some super complex streaming technology or whether I'm using Dropbox to sync the data. Don't tell me how the watch is built. Just tell me what time it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
how long did you do the oil rig data? And I guess what became of that? Or do you still have these contracts? Do you still have Dropbox running out in the in the oil field today? I don't. I did that for about a year. I had three rigs running. So that three rigs was one one customer. The price of oil tanked. That one customer actually closed up shop. And so at that time, I had already been courted by somebody else that I knew just from a relationship through my church, actually. So I had some some people that were in a completely different industry. So they're actually attorneys. They owned a law firm. They also owned a service company that worked with law firms. And they knew that I was doing this business, but also I was sort of struggling with it. Like I didn't have three rigs running continuously. It was up and down. They would stop running those rigs for a period of time. So I was struggling. I was struggling to get that company off the ground. So they had already approached me about working with them to create a product that served their industry. So when that client closed the doors, it was pretty rough in terms of letting go of all of that domain expertise. And that technology, I just really liked it. And I was proud of it. And I hated to put it in the closet. But I literally put those computers in the closet. Oh, I have one right here, actually. It's basically a regular computer, but it's in this, it's a fanless mini computer. And it's kind of got like a radiator design so that it expels the heat pretty quickly. And then these are the RS-232 ports. So I had to order these from China so that they would have all the things that I needed to connect them to the rig. But yeah, so I still have these. Literally, you can see I, I have it in my office for kind of sentimental value. But one of the reasons why... I was okay with it was oil and gas, like I said, fascinating, love that industry. But I also saw it as limited due to the increase in technology in oil and gas. We can achieve higher production with lowered numbers of rigs drilling at any given point. And the type of technology that my expertise lent itself to was drilling rigs. So if you look at a graph of like, number of drilling rigs and oil production, the number of drilling rigs is going down while production is going up because our ability to get more production out of one well has increased significantly. So I knew that the technology that I was building was maybe a little late. And so it was kind of bittersweet to put away that technology, put it in the closet and do something new. But at the same time, I was excited for a new challenge and I needed a way to support my family. So I took the opportunity to build this new technology, which was working with law firms and helping them communicate with their clients. So I built a, a text messaging application that allowed law firms to communicate with their clients. Real quick, were you able to pay Mateo back? Yes. Great question. That is the first thing that I did. So I, I was not able to pay him back at that time. But I had his money in a spreadsheet collecting interest. I had you know, his interest rate on the spreadsheet. We signed a loan contract, and that contract had an interest rate. I don't re recall exactly what it was. I had sort of the monthly amortization, and I never forgot about that. And the moment I made money later, so later I ended up selling Client Connect, which is the text messaging company. And the day that I sold Client Connect, I called Mateo and said, hey, man, I need to see you. I want to give you a big pile of money. 
which is your investment plus interest. So that was a, a good moment for me. I bet that felt good for for both of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Law firms, text messaging systems. What size law firms are buying this kind of technology? Are they the the big firms that are coast to coast? Are they more local family law type offices? So I'm going to answer that question. I'm just going to jump forward. At that point, the product that I created was called Client Connect. It was a text messaging application for law firms that mainly integrated with a case management system called Needles. And it it mainly focused on personal injury law firms. And the average size there was about 100 users per firm. But since then, I've sold Client Connect into Banjax, which is the company that I'm currently one of the founders and the CEO of. So I sold Client Connect into Banjax and we recreated Client Connect into the product, which we now call Conversations. So Conversations uh, serves law firms on Litify. It does text, fax, and email, and it keeps all of those records on the case file. So if you're an attorney, you can see your text, fax, and email all on your client's case file. And today, our average firm size is probably about 150, 200. Uh, We've got some firms around 50, and then we work with some, some larger firms as well. And what we're working on now is taking that same technology that we're applying to law firms and exploring whether that is advantageous for other verticals as well. Uh, But we work with a case management software called Litify, which is based on Salesforce. So Salesforce is the underlying technology and Litify is the law firm implementation of that technology so that law firms can run their business on Litify, which is on Salesforce. It sounds like you wouldn't be where you are today with Banjax if it weren't for Client Connect. Is that a fair statement? Going from writing VBA and modeling things out in Excel, going from there to building a text messaging app, that's a big leap in terms of technical ability. Did you just roll up your sleeves and figure out how to to do that? Or did you bring in, did you hire developers and guide them on what the product needed to do? So by this point, we're on about the 2,500 Google searches. <laughs> so I really do want to give credit here to a friend of mine who is the current software architect at Banjax and who I've worked with since I started Royal Services, the oil and gas company. His name is Ayaz Zafar. And it is a super interesting story how I got started with IAS. So when I decided that my oil field technology needed to advance beyond the Dropbox model, I wanted to create some real-time streaming, big data application, and sort of go all the way with the sophistication of the technology. And so I put out a job ad on an online portal. I think it was Freelancer. And I said, hey, I can only pay $15 an hour. I want someone not to build an application for me. I want someone to get on a Zoom call with me and walk me through how to build a big data, real-time data streaming interpretation product that's going to be sort of large scale. And we're going to sell this to oil and gas companies. And it has to be sort of enterprise grade. So just in case it isn't obvious, that request at face value is pretty absurd. 
And it's coming from a person who literally other than VBA knows no software development. So a lot of people on this freelancer platform wanted to make money. So they're like, yeah, okay, I'll take the job. So I cycled through developer after developer that could not hang with this concept. They would all try to convince me to, oh, just let me build you an application. I'm like, no, I don't want you to build me an application. I want you to teach me how to build a sophisticated application. And so about five or six developers in, I get IAS. I enter into this contract with them off a of freelancer. Ayaz lives in Pakistan. He lives in a village outside of Lahore, Pakistan. And he got on the call with me, incredibly patient, incredibly smart, self-taught, learned everything in his home in Pakistan and walked me through every step. What is HTML? What is JavaScript? What is CSS? What is a server? What is a database? How does it work? How does it interact with each other? What is HTTP protocols? What are these things? And, you know, I needed someone who could teach, but also keep up with the rate at which I wanted to learn and develop. And we just sat there and developed this application while he taught me from the beginning. And I have never let IAS go. So everywhere I go, every product I've worked on, I have taken IAS with me to the point where... IAS actually got equity in Client Connect whenever I started Client Connect. When we sold Client Connect to Banjax, we purchased IAS out of that equity. IAS is now runs a development company in Pakistan. My entire development team now works for IAS and he owns that company. And we have a contract with that company for all of our development needs today. So yeah, had a real sort of friend and partnership uh, working with IOS. Out of curiosity, have y'all ever met in person? Have you been to Pakistan or has he been to the US? So we have met in person. When we started Banjax, I wanted to create a full-fledged uh, development team. Prior to Banjax, I had worked with IOS and then we'd hired remote contractors that would work on the project. But I wanted to create a team that had an office and IAS was definitely going to run it. That was known. So I decided that we should open an office in Lahore, Pakistan. Lahore is a giant city. It's like 12 million people. So it's bigger than New York. There are several universities there. So we have access to talent. I uh, flew into Lahore. IAS picked me up from the airport. You know, I'd already spent hundreds of hours with him on Zoom calls. So we were already close friends, but got to give him a hug in person for the first time a couple of years ago about three years ago now when we started Banjax. We opened an office there in Lahore. I went to his home, met his family, uh, stayed in his village and met the people in that area. It was an incredible life experience. You know, prior to that, I had never traveled overseas. The only country I'd been to is Mexico. So I'm not really a well-traveled person, but this was an absolute cultural experience for me to go through that and and now we have many developers in Pakistan, and I've got to know many of them, both in person. We hired some in person on my trip, and also remotely, I've, I've got to know quite a number of them. Over the years, even prior to the pandemic, certainly have spent a lot of time on Zoom and GoToMeeting and you know other screen sharing tools. And when I've finally met people in person that I've spent a lot of screen time with, I go into meeting them with kind of this expectation of what they're going to be like in person. 
And some people I'm like, oh my gosh, you're, you're completely different than what I thought. What was that? Like, did you have a, a preconceived notion of what he was going to be like and, and how did that match up? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I think that it was pretty close. So I will say this of all of the experiences of Pakistan, Ayaz was the one that I had gauged and I knew pretty well, but all the other aspects were much more shocking to me. And I don't mean shocking necessarily in like a, a bad way or really just like seeing the way the culture functions was much different than I would have expected. And I don't know that I could fully sort of convey participating in their culture and, and really seeing that firsthand, but really an, an incredible, incredible experience. Let's go back to the founding of Client Connect. It sounds like you you started on this path of wanting to build this big data live streaming service that you go take to other oil companies, but there was clearly a detour at some point where you get into text messaging for lawyers. Where did that idea come from and how did you bring that to life? Sure. So the idea was actually brought to me by those uh, sort of extended friends that I just happened to be networked with in my social network, really through my church. And it was attorneys. It was these attorneys that wanted to solve a problem that they had. And so they had this problem. And initially, when I started working on that product, I did not own it. They were bringing me on and there was an equity deal, but I was going to be a minority owner. And then while I was working on it for them, That was a part of a different service company, not their law firm, and they sold that service company. And so a bunch of business deals shook out. They didn't know where I was supposed to land. And so they gave me the opportunity to just buy it from them. So I purchased it from them for $10, essentially. So this is a a element of the journey that maybe we can just chalk up to good fortune. But yeah, I bought it from them for, for $10. So it wasn't initially my idea, and I was not intended to be the primary owner of Client Connect. But when all that business shook out, Client Connect wasn't fully off the ground yet. So it didn't have like customers, revenue, or at least it didn't have a lot of customers and revenue. And so, yeah, I had the opportunity to purchase it for 10 bucks. And I've got that contract around here somewhere too. <laughs> at this point, I mean, you've done a lot of different things in your work life and kind of going from the Excel model to trying to build this app to landing a, a company for $10. You've been through so much change. Was that kind of like a eh, non-event or was there like a sense of excitement? Was there a sense of panic? Like I just lost this job. What's going through your mind? Well, so there was a little bit of the latter of sense of panic loss of job because even though purchasing Client Connect for $10 was an incredible stroke of good fortune, Prior to that purchase, I had a job and a salary, which I needed to pay my bills. So there was a period of time after that moment and before we sold Client Connect to Banjax that I was actually running Client Connect and working on oil rigs. I went back as a contractor, as a consultant. And so the the craziest sort of moments of that, I would get client connect customer service and sales calls while I was on a drilling rig. And so I would like try to carve out moments of time to run away from the drilling rig, like literally 
distance myself from the rig so that the noise of the rig would not interact with the call. And then, of course, I don't want the customer to know that I'm working on a drilling rig while I own the company that they are paying money to. So I'm on a sales call just kind of like trying to make light of the noise around me like it's coincidental. And so I did that for several months while things developed and I actually sold Client Connect into Banjaxed, which is the current company that I'm the owner and founder of with my partners now. I haven't got into them yet. My partners now, so James, Chad, and Steve out of Baton Rouge, they own Dudley DeBosier, big law firm in Louisiana, incredible people, incredible partners. So super fortunate to have hooked up with them and get into this partnership. I definitely want to dig into partnership more in a minute, but I do want to go back to Client Connect for a second. You bought the company and it sounds like the product wasn't totally finished. And you obviously, you said you didn't have paying customers, you didn't have revenue. How did you get the product over the finish line? And how did you land your first customer? It's interesting, like the product, I completed the product from a technical standpoint. So just a bit of clarification. When I started Client Connect, they had a version of texting that I just couldn't grow with. I couldn't sell it. It was like a clunky add-on. So I said, hey, I need to build a new product from scratch. I was actually working on this for about 18 months. And it did get over the finish line about four or five months before the sale that caused the business shakeout. And so I completed the project from a technical standpoint and started selling this new product. I actually had about $3,000 worth of revenue at the time I did the deal. And not only that, but I still had customers that were calling to sign up. And so I started when I purchased the company for 10 bucks, it had about $3,000 of recurring monthly revenue. The owners of the company didn't see that as significant at the time. They were like, oh, well, it's got nothing. Like that's less than the salary we are paying him. So we might as well let it go. But if you know anything about SaaS products, like you got a SaaS product that's completely built and making three grand in monthly revenue, like you're on the right track. So I knew I was on the right track. So I had to go back to work in the oil field so that I could make some money to put into marketing so that I could sell more recurring revenue contracts. So by the time the Banjax deal closed, I was already doing over 10 grand a month in recurring revenue by the time the Banjax deal came together. But I during that period, I had to you know work on oil rigs and put money into marketing. It was quite a dance. I imagine so. And <laughs> I'm sure you're not the, uh, the first entrepreneur, maybe not in an oil field, but I'm sure you're not the first entrepreneur that had to step away from some other job to go take that call from a, a customer or prospect. Yeah. So how did the Banjaxed merger acquisition come about? Sure. So one of my other partners and good friend, Martin Rice, I had worked with him when I was on Client Connect. He was the head of a services company called Legal Monkeys. That's the one that sold. And so he knew me, he knew my capabilities and work ethic. He went to go be the CEO of Dudley DeBosier and the owners, partners of Dudley DeBosier are James, Chad, and Steve, my current partner. So Merton told these guys, James, Chad, and Steve, hey guys, I happen to know about this resource, this guy that's running around right now building a company on his own that has no investors, that is basically ripe to be snatched up 
to create a partnership with. And so they said, all right, great, let's meet him. So I flew out to Baton Rouge where they're located, met them, and um, also met with Tyler Stillwell, who's my other co-founder here at Banjax. And we talked about what we could do together, what I already had. And they essentially supported everything that I wanted to do in terms of company direction. They also gave us a new direction. So at Client Connect, it was a web application, but they wanted to start moving law firms to Salesforce with Litify. They're the ones that initially turned me on to Salesforce. They said, hey, our law firms are going to go to Litify, which is on Salesforce. And if you could build the text messaging application to work with Litify and Salesforce and maybe add some additional communication functionalities, there's going to be a big market there that we are actually going to create and pioneer with our law firms. And so to me, that seemed like a ton of business synergies plus great partners. It made perfect sense to me. Plus, it was a lot more security for me to be partnered up with a well-established group. And so this was a perfect opportunity to start Banjax. And when they bought you out of Client Connect, was the plan from the get-go that it was going to be tied into Litify and you were going to go take that whole thing? Or did they want the text messaging technology and it was going to run standalone? And, and after the fact, they're like, hey, let's roll this all together. There was a lot of brainstorming around it. There were a lot of different avenues that were sort of considered. And I don't really recall exactly whether this was the first iteration, but it was definitely early on we knew that the text messaging service was going to be compatible with their business, their businesses, with them moving their law firms to Salesforce. And so it just made perfect sense. I mean, we already... We already had, I already had a lot of experience text messaging for law firms, but the law firms I had text messaged, I had created the service for in the past, were using a different kind of case management system. So it early on, we knew it was going to be a good fit to text message for law firms and Salesforce. One of the things I absolutely love about doing this is getting to hear the stories and, and they're all so different. There's certainly a lot of common threads but they're also different. And hearing your story, I'm thinking about the, the questions I normally ask, and I, I don't even feel like they apply. <laughs> and so I think one of my takeaways from talking with you, and actually, in a way, there's some parallels with another guest that we interviewed recently. I think one of the the morals here, the, the, my takeaway is just keep moving. I feel like that's what you've done from the beginning is just keep moving. So I do want to dig into the partner thing. There are people out there that will tell you, whatever you do, do not have a partner. There are other people out there that will tell you a thousand percent, get a co-founder, get a partner, get a group together. It sounds like the partnership has worked out really well for you. What do you attribute that to? And what would you tell somebody who is considering going that partner path? Yeah, well, I would say that there are definitely pros and cons. So I experienced with Client Connect and with Royal Services really not having a partner. And if you don't have a partner, you've got nobody that you have to keep up to date. You have nobody that you have to run your decisions by. And that can be both a blessing and a curse. If you do have a partner or multiple partners, the need to keep alignment does require calorie burn. So I would say that invest the time in communication. 
So if you're going to change directions, also I would say you want to establish clear expectations as far as what kinds of things require communication. Obviously, if you change the strategic direction of your company, if you're going to change what product you're offering or whatever, that's something that really requires partner buy-in. Maybe there are smaller things that don't. And which partners need to know those different levels of information you need to know. And so I actually have a lot of partners right now because I have a co-founder. I also have James, Chad, Stephen, Merton, who all have an interest in Banjax. And so fortunately for me, the partners that I have are super cool. I mean, they definitely want to be kept up to date. They have gotten frustrated at me before if I've made some decision that they felt was significant enough that I should have talked to them about it. But, you know, I'm also in the habit of making fast decisions, right? And so to me, that sometimes is a challenge for me to realize like, okay, this decision is significant enough. I need to go ahead and get board buy-in. It has been a learning experience, but we're into a rhythm now. We understand each other. They trust me. I trust them. And I try to get better at it. And we call each other out. If they're upset with me for not doing something, they tell me. And it's not, you know, we have a lot of fights, but it's, I mean, I say that in air quotes because it's kind of like a relationship, right? If you have a relationship where you never call each other out on things that you're not quite happy about, and then those relationships that keep silent often end up in a blow up where, you know, somebody leaves because they haven't been properly communicating. So, look, I'm going to call Merton, who's the chairman of the board after this. And that discussion might get heated because that's the way we talk to each other. It's learning to communicate, learning to express yourself and in very specific expectations of what you expect from the other person and what requires communication. But absolutely, there is a calorie burn to having a partnership, but I thoroughly enjoy it. And I view it every step I kind of look at as a opportunity to learn the next thing that's going to help me sort of level up. And there's no way that you can get to the highest levels of success without being really good at communicating with other critical stakeholders. There is a ceiling to how far you can go on your own. And at a certain point, uh, you've got to learn to communicate. You've got to learn to understand the perspectives of, of other stakeholders. So yeah, I would definitely say weigh the pros and cons, know what you're getting into, get great partners, communicate with those partners. If you're frustrated, if they're frustrated, make sure that those things are communicated openly. And those are my sort of pieces of advice for maintaining a partnership. You talked about when to bring them in on decisions and I'm thinking, okay, if, if you're changing the the coffee in the in the kitchen from Folgers to Starbucks, like clearly that's not a decision that you need to roll up. And obviously, if you're going to completely change the strategic direction of the organization, obviously that is a call. But man, there's a lot of middle ground in between. And I imagine you kind of walk a tightrope figuring out, okay, what can I decide on my own and what do I need to go to for them? Do you feel like you're walking a tightrope with that? Or do you feel like you've landed in a pretty good spot and you know when to escalate? Not really. I mean, my partners are so cool. If there's ever an issue, it's usually my fault. Meaning like I have decided we're going to start new 
service lines that I haven't cleared with them. And that was totally my fault. They have no issues. Like if I hire someone today, that's not something I have to run by them. Unless this is a person that is going to get like equity in the company or is some strategic hire that is an outrageous salary, I don't have to run really anything by them unless it affects the structure of the company, the services and products that the company is offering, the cap table. So yeah, any issues have mostly been my me moving too fast for their taste. And that's all me. I should have communicated. I don't really have an issue with them wanting me to communicate sort of petty decisions. It's, it's the big things. And it's been my fault the whole time. Do you have a regular communication cadence with all of the partners? Yes, I do. I have a uh, financial summary that I send out every month. And then immediately after sending that, schedule a Zoom call. And so every month I send out financials and they have a bunch of graphs. I got pie charts and line charts and month over month, year over year, all those sorts of things. And then in addition to that financial update, we immediately schedule a Zoom call to discuss those financials and any other significant events. How long ago did you sell Client Connect and and form Banjaxed? So we initially formed the partnership, and I'm going to say that not in the legal sense, but in the sort of agreement sense. The spirit of it. Yeah, the spirit of it. We formed the spirit of the partnership a little over three years ago. We formed Banjax the company about two and a half years ago. We formed Banjax on January 25th of 2021. But we had the spirit of the partnership already for about a year prior to that, maybe nine months. And during that nine months, we were really evaluating exactly what we were going to be doing. And then we formed Banjax around a particular thesis, which was we were going to bring communications into Litify and Salesforce. And also, I didn't mention this part, we were also going to build technology for data migration and implementation into Salesforce. And that's what I was doing for that nine months prior was moving a law firm to Salesforce. And during that time, I built an application that is basically like a wizard for moving onto Salesforce. So you can map your data from a legacy database, like an on-premise SQL server, you can map that over to Salesforce. And so we formed Banjax with those two underlying technologies, communications and data migration. Two and a half years ago, it was just you stepping out of the job trailer to go take that call in the oil field. And today you're the CEO of a company that I would say is fairly established. Remind me how many employees you have today? We have about 35 employees. Well, that's we have about 35 U.S.-based employees. As I mentioned, Ayaz, as well as two partners that he has, owns a development company in Pakistan. Uh, and we contract to that development company. And we have about 15 developers in Pakistan that work on that contract. And then in addition to that, we have about a, another uh, five contractors. So including U.S.-based and overseas in the capacity of employees and contractors, we have about 55 team members. So two and a half years ago, you were a one-man show. And today, 
you're the CEO of a 55 person company, didn't complete college, don't have a Harvard business degree, man, what, how have you learned how to run an organization of that size so quickly? Well, I think I'm on about 15,000 Google searches by now, (laughs) but it's one thing at a time. I mean, every day is a new challenge and it's a challenge that is slightly different than the one that I had yesterday, but I have some experience from the one that I had yesterday. So I just Google the one that I'm having today. And, uh, you know, now Google has changed to other sources, chat GPT. I also have a great team. So I have people here at Banjax that are an incredible support to me that I wouldn't be able to do on my own. So for example, our COO, Salil, who I met at AIT, is almost the opposite of me in a lot of ways. So I dropped out of college. He has five degrees, including a master's degree. Most of those from the University of Texas in psychology, economics, and all sorts of stuff. And so where I default to creativity, he knows all the best practices. He knows what Harvard Business School is going to say about any given situation. So that gives me the support I need to know when I'm probably making the wrong decision. If a scenario comes up and he says, hey, I've got an SOP for this, I've got a best practice for this, then I have something to vet my thought process off of, which is a fantastic help. I also have people like Monique and Grammar and Christine. These are operational people that really cover a lot of my weaknesses. So I can delegate, you're handling this aspect of the business. I can move on to my next Google search, which is in relation to the next thing that is happening at Banjax. What are the parts of the job that you enjoy most? And on the flip side, what are the parts of the job you enjoy the least? Good question. So the most, I think, is the constant learning. The next thing that that is expanding my perspective on the world, I really look at it all as just updating my model of the world. Everything I'm learning, whether it's about the physics of oil and gas drilling or the structure of a line of credit versus a a venture fund, like all of these things are just updating my model of the world. So I think the learning experiences is what I enjoy the most. And then what I enjoy the least is the things that don't really inform those. So the monotonous and like doing payroll or, uh, you know, just like the stuff you have to do. And that's, that's, again, why I am so glad I have a team that handles so many of those things that I'm not especially excited about doing. But yeah, I'd say that's what I enjoy the most and the least. What's next? Well, I don't want to think too much about what's next until I have identified what success is for Banjaxed. And so... One of the things I'm working on right now from a business perspective is rolling out a either a stock option plan or some kind of a stock unit plan to employees in the company, which we don't currently have that working on the legalities of that right now. And so I want to establish what does success look like for Banjax over the next 24, 36 months? Like I mentioned, we have two pieces of underlying technology that I think 
are super valuable to the marketplace. And I absolutely want Banjax to be a success. I want all of our employees to be successful in whatever sort of framework they have created for success here at Banjax. And and then once I start to wrap my hands around that, I'm sure that I will be thinking about what's next. I do consider myself an entrepreneur. I consider myself a founder. And so at some point in the future, I imagine there will be a life after Banjax. But right now, all I'm concerned about is is Banjax. I would say Banjax is probably a toddler in its life cycle. And so I need to get it to be an adolescent and then to be an adult. And then when it graduates from college, then I will feel comfortable thinking about that question a little further. Is there anything that you had hoped to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Not really. I mean, I, uh, I really didn't have uh, anything other than, like you said, hopping on and having a conversation. So I feel like I did too much talking in proportion to you. So maybe next time I need to to hear more from you. Mel knows exactly what I'm about to say, but I am not the star of the show. Our guests are the star of the show and we want to hear your story. So you did great. <laughs> That's what we were going for. So one of the things that I want to talk about is how we got connected, which I think is a little bit unusual. And I think it speaks to your character and how you approach business and members of your your team. So I'll tell this real quick. We actually hired at my firm, Venn Technology, we hired somebody from Drew's firm, from Banjax. And I will say that we didn't go out recruiting them, but it was a situation where he needed to relocate. And I think our, our mentality is very similar in that we want people in the office to be a part of our culture. And so you really do need to be local to the office. And so we've got to similar mindset there. But when he left you and he joined us, he did it with your blessing. Yeah. And I just thought it was so cool. I was only mad at you for a second, Scott, not for very long. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So you did take one of my employees, but no, I think the point that you're getting at is we did not try to stop him at all. And as a matter of fact, one of the things about just like you said, keep moving. Like I don't have time to think any negativity about some direction that someone else is going to go. All of our employees are getting smarter every day. They're getting more skills. We need to keep them employed. If this is the, I believe in free markets and they may have a better opportunity. We try to keep a good opportunity here. And if we can't win that competition, then we don't deserve to win that competition. And so I spend no energy trying to hold anybody back. And when we found out, like you mentioned, one of the main reasons he needed to change jobs is because of location. He needed to move. So the one thing that we were happy about was at least we didn't lose him for lack of creating a good work environment. And he found some place that had the kind of work environment that he was used to, which is a good work environment. And that we were super happy about. So I'm glad that you guys got to benefit from that, that he got to benefit by finding a good place to work where he needed to relocate. So, so yeah, that worked out great. And I met you in the process. So he hooked us up. So he had enough confidence in me and in you to know that we weren't going to hold any grudges. And that worked out great. 
I wasn't familiar with y'all before he joined us, but when he came on, I did I went out and I researched and just looking at your website, I get a sense for the culture and the kind of company you're building and I love it. And I'm excited to see where you guys go from here. Thanks a lot, Scott. I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. That was Drew Murr, founder and CEO of Banjax Solutions. To learn more, visit banjaxed.com. That's B-A-N-J-A-X-E-D.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 